uh, I started getting double vision, headaches, and then one day I collapsed. I think the, the biggest opportunity is OnlyFans because it is so misunderstood. Yeah. Everyone assumes it's just adult content. What brought about the decision to leave Gleam and to step away? Just rushed into hospital, emergency brain surgery, mm. uh, kind of like woke up from that, feeling like a different person. Today, I think I might be the most excited that I've ever been before a podcast, because to me, I don't think that this agency would be here if it wasn't for people like you. So today we've got the godfather of influence marketing. I know it's so cheesy. Dom Smales, how you doing? I'm all right. Yeah. yeah. How are you? This is, I forgot to keep forgetting this is being videoed as well, yeah. isn't it? Again, new <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your generous introduction. No problem. I'm really excited to get into everything you're doing now and obviously everything that you did with Gleam over the years. But I've been listening to a few podcasts of you recently that you've been on and I've been reading stuff. And I, I just find it really interesting digging back to what people were doing before they started their quote unquote, you know, big business. Sure. So talk to me about what you were doing before Gleam. Oh, so I, I founded Gleam in February of 2010. Yeah. Uh, and I had a career before that in media, advertising, marketing. Yeah. Uh, the business that I was in before I started Gleam was a production company. Mm. Uh, we were making content for various platforms. Uh, so it's always been around kind of like media, entertainment, yeah. those sort of sectors. Okay, amazing. And am I right in saying that it it was a health scare that kind of gave you that push to kind of do something yeah. else? Yeah. I mean, I'd got to, I had uh, small kids yeah. uh, and I must have been... I, I might get the maths wrong in all of this, but I think I was around 30, 35 years old, 35 yeah. years old or so. And I started getting headaches and double vision and I was working like flat out for a production company, running a production company as a managing director. Yeah. And I uh, started getting double vision, headaches, and then one day I collapsed and uh, took it very seriously. It went to various um, op opticians thinking my contact lens... <laughs> prescription was wrong and yeah. that's what was making me have double vision and headaches uh but then eventually a smart enough uh, optician and ophthalmic specialist spotted that i had something wrong with my brain uh and after a bit of a scary moment where i wondered if it would be yeah. terminal uh so literal life flashing before eyes type thing it's diagnosed as being a thing called hydrocephalus water on the brain right okay which is serious but it's not kind of like immediately life-threatening um and I was, after another episode where I collapsed, rushed into hospital, emergency brain surgery, mm. uh, kind of like woke up from that, feeling like a different person because once someone's cracked your head open and been in there, it changes yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, had a big life think, basically, once I'd got my health back on track, um, decided that I wanted more control over my diary was the impetus yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, originally. And... Um, left to start my own, left the production company to start my own consultancy, basically, so that I could right. be in charge of my destiny, be on my own and yeah. see more of my, you know, wife and family and all that kind of thing, ironically. And uh, off we went with Gleam Digital, a consultancy for brands who wanted to connect with online communities, basically, for mutual benefit. Right. And that was our strapline. Connect with online communities for mutual benefit. Okay. So how did the, that switch from doing that to managing the talent come about? So 
during the connecting with online communities for mutual benefit phase yeah. of Gleam Digital, and I had I was lucky enough to have some really great clients in brands like Chanel and Alberto Culver, who mm. at the time and brands like Tresemme and VO5. So I was heading towards a, a beauty sector, yeah. um, beauty and fashion. Uh, and during that time, I met some online makeup artists mm. who were, had a small, relatively small YouTube channel called Pixie Woo, mm. where they were teaching people how to do makeup. And they were obviously passionate about yeah. makeup as well. And How big was their following at the time? About uh, 15, 20,000 okay. subscribers on YouTube, which actually yeah. at the time was pretty substantial. Okay. You know, there weren't many yeah. people doing that kind of following on YouTube, but there weren't many people who were bothered with YouTube at that point. Mm. You know? It's all cat videos. And yeah, it was dogs yeah. who'd mastered the art of skateboarding <laughs> or people who had walked into glass doors yeah. not realizing they were there, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Google had owned it for maybe a year or two, I think, at that point. Uh, Instagram didn't exist. Twitter was, you know, gathering momentum. Uh, so it was fairly kind of early days. Hmm. Um, but when I met with, it was Sam and Nick Chapman, two makeup artist sisters running Pixie Woo. And it was on behalf of Chanel because I wanted to sample them some new Chanel products, see if they would like it and feature it on their video. Yeah. As, you know, influencer marketing companies do today, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these days. Um, not much has changed there. Um, I met these guys and got on really well with them. They what they did fascinated me, the way that their personalities were broadcast to an increasingly engaged and ever-growing audience mm. really kind of like in ignited something within me in terms yeah. of the potential of this. And it was at that moment that I kind of pivoted I still paying the bills just with, by doing community management for big beauty brands and mm. uh, helping them with their social media, which is incredibly basic at the time. Yeah. Uh, if you can imagine brands like Tresemme and Chanel, like so now Tresemme is owned by Unilever, yeah. didn't have a social media agency. They weren't social media agencies, no. you know, yeah, at that yeah. time. Uh, they definitely weren't influencer marketing companies. In fact, the word influencer didn't exist. So... Uh, it was very basic, but uh, it was at that point, though, when I met Sam and Nick, that I pivoted from wanting to advise the brands into wanting to advise the talent mm. because I could sense that sooner or later all the big you know, agency groups would be all over social media and yeah. be competing with me. Uh, and I just, I, I'm a people fan, you know, and I preferred thinking about the people, the talent, what they were capable of and yeah. helping them reach their potential and earn a sustainable living and all that kind of stuff was much more exciting to me than just the brand side of things. So had you at any point prior to that, m like managed, you obviously had never managed talent before. And when you started signing those creators, were you personally managing them or did you have a team managing them? No, I was personally okay. managing them. I mean, like most, you know, startups scrappy startups it was just me yeah the laptop in a coffee shop yeah yeah but i called us we <laughs> really. i love that so much and and when i took a phone call i paced up and down the street pretending that i was just on my way in between meetings out of my amazing office etc yeah. but i wasn't um i had had exposure to talent and managing talent in that the production company that i uh, worked at before starting Gleam, mm. managed talent. We had yeah. an agent. We had a okay. couple of agents work there, and they were presenters, sports presenters, right. TV presenters okay. mainly. But no, you know, social media talent didn't exist. So, 
uh, it was all new from there. But I think that not having experience as an agent or a manager was specifically a, yeah. was key to establishing a different way of working with talent that, yeah. quite frankly, the talent needed, I think, yeah. at that point of the evolution. Was anybody managing digital talent at that point in the UK? No, not in Europe. I mean, I think there were a couple of people in the States. If you think about 2010, mm. I, I might be wrong and it's all getting a bit blurry now, but I think there were people like... Uh, Tyler Oakley was around and yeah, Grace yeah. Helbig and they had good dedicated managers yeah. that got the space and were already onto it and they're still in the business. So Tyler's friends with Boyce, I think. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's where that probably connection is. Yeah. Uh, so, because that's what interests me about the, the whole evolution of it and I heard you on another podcast basically saying for the first four years, there was no competition. Like there was no other agency out there doing this. So did you, was it a case of it was quite easy to sign talent because you were one of the only agencies doing it or was it quite difficult because there weren't that many creators or you know creators at the time yeah maybe a bit of both yeah so there wasn't any competition yeah uh not that i ever thought about competition we would i was just doing the job and, yeah. and growing the business yeah and the business grew very organically like mm. it became busy and i was fortunate enough to meet the people that I met along the way to help me mm. uh, and sign the talent that I signed because they were friends, friends of friends, of friends of friends of friends. <laughs> it, there wasn't kind of like a, right, what's our recruitment strategy and how are we going to find the best yeah. talent? And all that. It just didn't work like that back yeah. then, uh, which is probably a good job because uh, I wasn't that organized, you know? Uh, it was very much a case of getting on a treadmill, running fast, mm. and running faster as the treadmill sped yeah. up, basically. Figuring it out as you go along, I Figuring guess. it out as you go along. And I was lucky that I had that that grace period when mm. we were the only game in town because we were so far ahead of the curve at that point uh, that we got to learn a huge amount and learn by mistakes as well and also set the pace for certain things like yeah. value, uh, um, and uh, workflow and mm. uh, policy and compliance and all of that kind of stuff, we kind of worked out as we went along. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what, what was it like when you started seeing that, I guess, more exponential growth and you were having to hire people and then you, I'm assuming, took a step back from managing the talent and you were now managing the team? Because I've gone through that in the past couple of years where I've started by managing the talent and now I don't manage I manage one creator but I don't manage anybody else like my day-to-day -day now is managing the team which is a very different concept what was that like for you yeah so I guess uh I didn't I didn't actually ever stop managing talent right okay yeah and uh in some cases I was like on the road with talent right up to you know, the oh. very late years of, of Gleam. Okay. Um, because, I mean, a number of reasons. One of the reasons was that that's what I loved and yeah. was good at, really. I'm not very good at very many things, but um, I kind of like fell into my my stride on this, on the talent management thing. Yeah. So I've always been a talent manager mm. and uh, would probably describe myself essentially as that now. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, to be able to recruit just the best team right from the beginning and have that 
grace period mm. where I didn't have any competition and there wasn't, you know, everybody hyping and pumping salaries through the roof all over the place and mm. poaching people and all of that. The, the kind of, you know, uh, ecosystem it is now, uh, I was able to find people who were super passionate about what was happening mm. in the creator economy that yeah. was in its embryonic stages at that point and were really into it. In fact, uh, some of the first people that I employed were creators themselves, really, because they mm. knew... That there were very few people who knew what the hell I was talking about, <laughs> and you couldn't really convince people. Any adults, yeah. really, and I would, wouldn't class myself as one, were just like, what are you doing? Even so, now that's the case. I had well, so Sedge Beswick from um, Scene Connects. Right. She was in the other day on the podcast, and I was saying, how do you... Because we both recently had children, both went to NCT classes, and were sat in a circle... And everyone's saying, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, all this come from Cambridge. So everyone's incredibly intelligent. And then I go, oh, I work in marketing. Cause like, I don't know how to describe it to people. Cause nine times out of 10, when you describe it, they're like, what are you on about? Yeah, I know. So back then it must've been even more so like that. It was, but it kind of fired me up as well though. Yeah. I loved it. I quite like sitting around very sensible, professional middle-class dinner tables and <laughs> telling people that I've managed YouTubers yeah. and they would they would laugh. Um, but uh, obviously things things uh, evolve, but it is always very difficult to kind of try and describe it to people. So mm. in those early days, I hired people that knew what they were talking about and yeah. knew the, the culture and the platforms and uh, they knew natively how to use the platforms like mm. YouTube and they were into it and they watched YouTubers yeah. like because that was their chosen form of entertainment yeah. or they created content for YouTube because that's what they were passionate about rather mm. than trying to find people, which is impossible at the time, but it's probably possible now, who just studied at a university or, or whatever, or mm -hmm. heard there's some money in it, so they're trying to get make a career in it. Um, and those people went on to, I mean, one of those people, for example, is uh, Lucy Loveridge, who was, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she came on board very early, and I reached out to her and gave her a, a pair of uh, Timberland boots, because I was running an, out, an outreach for Timberland. And she was a fashion blogger. Yeah. And uh, then we, we met and I hired her and she came on board as a kind of like a, uh, a marketing assistant and then was totally into the talent space, mm. became one of the first manager at mm. Gleam and so on. And now she runs globally the social talent division at YMU. Yeah, no, I've, I've met Lucy and she's absolutely lovely. Mm. One of the things that I was, it's interesting you talk about hiring people that were creators themselves because... One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the abundance of creators there are now. I think that one of the, I was doing a talk for another agency the other day and they said, why have you been able to grow quickly the last couple of years? And I said, well, frankly, everybody was at home during lockdown trying to get on TikTok. And I'd yeah. say at least maybe 50% of our creators had never posted a piece of content until lockdown, yeah. which is kind of crazy when you think about it. What do you think of the the environment and the market right now in terms of pretty much everybody wanting to be a content creator? Is it is it a good thing for the industry? Uh, if I'm honest, no, I don't think it is. I think that one of the biggest uh, barriers to success in this entire industry mm. is the uh, watering down of quality yeah. and the low uh, bar there is for entry point yeah uh and then the lack of experience on the buy side of things in mm. terms of what good looks like mm. so what you get is a 
kind of blurring of, uh, I don't know, just a dumbing down of the, the quality in the entertainment business yeah. and also the marketing business as well. And we move further and further towards commoditization of talent, which is yeah. actually what uh, the one thing that I was desperately striving against with Gleam, yeah. which was always trying to represent the best in the marketplace. Uh, and it's not about volume, it's about quality and all of those kind of like benchmarks. Mm. Um, and these days, of course, if you're an influencer marketer, mm. then you're interested in much more the metrics yeah. and the commodity available through online platforms yeah. for your brand, uh, which is fine. That's, you know, it's marketing channel, mm. but I'm still passionate about the talent side of things. And yeah. that what started the whole thing was that unique relationship between a creator and their audience mm. without any gatekeeper in between. That's what started everything. Yeah. Pixie were able to create makeup looks that their audience wanted to see. And their audience would tell them in the comments below the video what they wanted to see next. And then Sam and it would create it. Simple. Yeah. Now, do you know the, the factors involved in online uh, content creation and uh, influencers? It's like a multi-billion dollar business. Mm. Uh, I would say that there are editors, gatekeepers involved now, and they're the brands and the platforms. Mm. Mostly the brands because... Mm it's the brands that are driving the platforms to heavily censor the content on the platforms mm. in order to drive the uh, advertisers to, uh, to the platforms and feel safe, you know? Yeah. Did that dilution, you talk about the dilution of, of the pool really, as you know, more people want to become content creators. As you grew as a company and as more competitors came into the market, did you feel any pressure to, to build the volume within your roster to try and compete, continue competing against your competitors? Or was it always just, no, we don't care how small the roster is or how big it is, we're just going to focus on quality the whole time? Yeah. yeah. It was basically that. We, ne we never succumbed to wanting to, right, let's sign 10 people a week or 10 people a month or mm. 20 people, a, whatever. It was just about finding the right people. Mm. Uh, and we scoured the internet for the yeah. right people and occasionally they would pop and we would sit and talk about it on a almost daily basis as a team mm. uh, and decide on the right people to sign. Yeah. But it wasn't, uh, and even to this day, I think you look at Gleam's uh, roster, yeah. it's not, you know, hundreds and hundreds of no, talent. No, it's quality. Over yeah. Quantity. And the really good talent management outfits, if they are thinking about talent management, they curate their roster very carefully. Mm. Um, and, it's, and there are a number of factors that go into what makes a, a creator really interesting. Mm. Uh, as a growth project as well as ongoing commercial um, asset. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I asked that question quite in a loaded way because now there's so much competition in terms of talent management agencies. Every week there's a new agency. Somebody's left one agency, started their own agency. Yeah. And it is a lot of competition. And I think that I know personally, and being quite transparent here, it felt quite a lot of pressure to make sure that the roster grows to be able to compete. And I do think at the beginning, we've really focused on quality over quantity. And I think maybe we got a bit lost for a few months, six months or so. And now doing exactly what you're saying, focus on the creators. doesn't matter how many you've got. It's about the, the talent you're working with, but not just the roster, the talent internally in terms of your team is so important. And what you're saying about hiring the best people is so key. 
Yeah, it, it, success is only available to those that have great teams on both sides of the yeah. of the operation, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's a you know cheesy old phrase you hear: if you want to go fast, go alone; if you want to go far, go together. Yeah. You know, and uh, I would encourage anybody that's coming into talent management in the digital space mm. or or, uh, or or are already in it, like yourself. I'd focus on quality because I think I still think when it comes to talent quality will out yeah and if you're looking at kind of bending off the competition mm. you've only got to compete with people with the ability to be able to attract the best talent mm. at whatever stage of their career they're at now if you've got an, a, an agency that has 500 talent managed by four people then you you're not gonna have got the best work out of your team in terms of taking advantage of the opportunities for the talent you're probably going to have the talent uh, a bit underwhelmed by the prospects and attention and encouragement and development they're getting from mm -hmm. your team because there's so many people and and that will curtail your ability to be able to attract that best talent so it's That's, better to have the yeah. best talent making the most amount of money over the longest period of time mm. rather than just getting loads of mediocre people no i completely agree and i think one of the, the big key things to our business model has always been keep our rosters really small because mm -hmm. one of the, I was talking to you about just before the podcast about when we started as a brand agency we'd work with loads of different talent agencies and the number one thing that used to frustrate us when we worked with these talent agencies was when the talent manager had too many creators on their roster because mm. you just can't give them the attention that they need mm -hmm. and it still happens so much with, with, with agencies that are growing and they sign 20 creators to one manager and they think that's going to work because mm. something that I've heard you talk about which really resonates with me is that you started Gleam with the intention of creating careers for these people it wasn't just a transaction it was trying to show them this can be a career for you yeah. and I don't think you can do that if you manage too many people because you just don't have enough hours in the day or you know you know the bandwidth to do it yeah totally and it's not going to bring the best out of your team as well your internal yeah. team because they'll feel frustrated by not wanting, not mm. being able to uh, spend the hours developing the key talent. If you think about how you scale a talent, mm. then uh, it's about, uh, there's, there's infinite scale available to the right talent because you have channels to reach an infinite amount of people, yeah. really. Uh, so you just need to find the right people to be able to offer that scale to, rather than inverting that um, triangle and mm. trying to go the other way. Yeah. So just starting with loads of people and just trying to get a medium to small amount of longevity and commercial success out yeah. of those loads of people. It doesn't work that way. So yeah. it, the numbers of talent on the roster really doesn't matter. It's about having the right talent. The right, the right talent. How, what, so what brought about the decision to leave Gleam and to step away? Well, uh, so there was a crucial moment in the evolution of Gleam, which was uh, around 2017, 16, 17, yeah. that the whole influencer management and marketing business was exploding. Mm. Everybody wanted in. I had an email inbox full of uh, offers for acquisition, mm. all kind of partnership, all kinds of stuff. I was being uh, courted by all the big talent companies of the world, including WME, CAA, UGA, etc., because everybody wanted in on the space. Mm. And I realized that if we were to survive and carry on delivering the kind of success we had already delivered for our roster in the future, then we had to muscle up quick so we had to go global very quickly because it was a global audience mm. and we should be a global business and we had 
kind of like slowly and tentatively and like painfully expanded to uh, LA and Sydney from London. So we had three offices mm. in 2017, but we wanted to be in the Middle East. We wanted to be, we wanted to be all over, all over the world basically, mm. because that was the opportunity. So I started looking around at potential partners, uh, collaborators, investors, yeah. uh, and uh, we fat through a, you know, I went, with the process but through a process we found uh, a big Japanese advertising conglomerate to partner with and um, went down that way uh, did the deal for investment uh, the company uh, grew we started trying to integrate uh, and it got to the point when at the end of uh, 2020 that I realized that uh, after the earnout and all the M&A had gone through and all that kind of thing that mm. at this romantic notion I had of always sitting at the helm of gleam and stewarding it through its yeah. future forever. But when I had less control over the business, uh, would have been a great thing, but I didn't want to get in gleam's way anymore because yeah. it was a different, bigger company with the different prospects ahead of it as part of this big group. Yeah. Um, and they go on to be hugely successful and I really admire the work that, uh, that they're doing mm. with gleam now. Uh, but, I felt like it was time for a new chapter for me and for Gleam. So yeah. uh, that was basically the decision. I, to and I want to get on to that next chapter in a second. But one of the things that I'm really interested to talk to you about is how does it feel to have stepped away from something that you built, like you said, from the coffee shop on your laptop and now watch it being run by somebody else without you there? Like, What's that like? What are you talking about like now, yeah. for example? Yeah. Uh, I'm very proud mm. <laughs> that something can be created like that and then can have a life of its own. Yeah. Is it, again, it's a, a re really cliched, but you've got kids, huh? Yeah, one kid. One kid. So one day yeah. <laughs> they, they grow up and they have, they have their own life, their own personality, their own prospects, their yeah. own future. And uh, they will one day leave home and off they go. And I kind of feel that way a bit about, about Gleam. Yeah. Um, it was a hell of a journey. Uh, it's a very different business now than it was then or even than it is than it was four years ago versus 10 years ago and so on. It evolves all yeah. the time. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that kind of like, it, you know, it's not about me. I mean, in fact, the beautiful, mm. beautiful thing about Gleam was it was not about me, yeah. the founder. It's not a business that needed uh, me per se. It mm. was the sum of its parts mm. and those parts being the, brilliant team that was at gleam and they and some of them are still there yeah uh the brilliant talent on gleam's roster the brilliant mm. partners that gleam had and that includes publishing companies tv companies uh brands you name it mm. um and that's what causes gleam to grow so there was a really clear point at which i could step back and uh watch it kind of watch it flourish sail yeah. off and flourish yeah absolutely how long did it take? Because I, I find this interesting as well. When people do sell businesses and they walk away, how long did it take for you to to get back into the game, if if you will, like to start to do other things? Because I know you're doing other things now. Did you have a period of like, I'm just going to rest, I'm going to have six months off? Or did you just get straight back into it? Like, what was the process there? Yeah, like? I thought, to be honest with you, in the last kind of like, I don't know, six months or so, I thought this is, I'm probably going to just sit on a beach or play golf or something like that. But then directly after exiting yeah. Gleam, 
it didn't take long at we were in lockdown at the time mm. as well I remember mm. um it didn't take long for me to realize that I actually it would send me insane to stop working so I I just carried on like yeah. I didn't have a day a day rest really really no. straight into it uh straight into other things absolutely and what are those other things for anyone that hasn't hasn't seen what you're doing now so uh, a number of things yeah um i'm still fascinated by the creator economy mm. i think that there is a really interesting future for the subscription platforms within mm. the creator economy and i co-founded a business um a couple of years ago a year ago or so with uh, a friend of mine who I met, funnily enough, on one of the very first ever Gleam shoots. Oh, really? Yeah, when we were working for Tresemme, the <laughs> hair brand, and she was a hair model on the shoot. Wow. And we'd stayed in touch as mates throughout a, you know, a decade, and it wasn't until quite recently that uh, she shared with me her story of how she had uh, health challenges and had to look for other income other than uh, being a commercial model and hair model, etc. Mm. And she launched a channel on OnlyFans and uh, had built a very stable solid growing valuable income mm. on only fans not doing adult content i might add before you assume that <laughs> which is what you've <laughs> because your brain brand. yeah originally yeah. goes to totally um and she ha- uh, it triggered something in me in that hmm perhaps this is kind of like youtube of 2010 whereby mm. there are much smaller audiences but they're very very engaged rather yeah. than just enormous audiences mm. that are 0.2% engaged. Um, and uh, yeah, Sophie had started this uh, OnlyFans channel, made a decent amount, amount of money out of hundreds, if not maybe, uh, you know, very few thousand subscribers rather yeah. than hundreds of thousands or millions of subscribers. Yeah. And uh, so together we founded a business called Glow Project, which uh, helps support creators who want to forge a career on subscription platforms, mainly OnlyFans. Okay. Uh, but they want to do it in a non-explicit way. So right. it's uh, a much broader uh, creator roster mm. uh, than the, just being an adult creator. Not that there's, a, we don't judge the adult creators either mm. on OnlyFans and think actually it's a safe environment for yeah. those types of creators to create mm. and much more rewarding and uh, kind of like they hold on to their own rights and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, but we want to try and be a bit more mainstream about it and encourage PTs, chefs, yeah. you know, uh, all kinds of experts, comedians, comedians to focus on OnlyFans as a platform to find smaller, more niche audiences, mm. but much more engaged, valuable audiences than you might do on Instagram. Mm. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast this morning and one of, I'm a big rugby fan. So right. It's like a rugby based podcast. And one of the guys, James Haskell, who used to play for England. He's a DJ as well. And he's on OnlyFans and he's yep. doing DJ content. And he was saying, you know, I earned 1500 pounds last week for just putting my DJ stuff on this platform. And mm. everybody's, you know, saying, oh my God, you're on OnlyFans. What are you posting kind of thing? But it's, it's interesting, the subscription model. Are you, are you trying to get on other platforms that are not OnlyFans? Um, yeah, I mean, to be frank, there's Twitch is a subscription platform. Yeah. Patreon yeah. is a quite a big successful subscription platform yeah. as well. And then there's OnlyFans. And there are hundreds of others as well. Mm. A cameo. Like, think about the ways yeah, that you yeah. can monetize premium content, premium exclusive content, be mm. that a happy birthday wish from a celebrity on Cameo versus 
you know, an exclusive workout or yoga flow from someone on OnlyFans or Patreon yeah. or extra bits to a podcast that on Patreon, yeah, yeah. etc. But at this point, I think the the biggest opportunity is OnlyFans because it is so misunderstood. Yeah, like everyone assumes it's just adult content. Mm. Don't get me wrong; there's a lot of adult content on there, mm. um, but it is essentially a social media platform yeah. that has a subscriber. Uh, a subscription element to it. So you can choose to hide your content behind a paywall yeah. and then have your subscribers subscribe for exclusive content. That's at its roots. That's what it is. Mm. Uh, what content you create on there is up to you. As long as you're not doing anything illegal and you're not hurting anybody, then mm. it's fine. And I kind of think that's the, that's the spirit with which the whole creator economy started yeah. back in 2010 yeah. was that suddenly it's up to us what we create and say and do on our entertainment platforms mm. and without anyone judging or censoring it. But now, of course, it's highly judged and censored because Massively of the brand censored money. on the major, yeah. major platforms, the YouTubes of the world, yeah. pulling down videos left, right and centre. And Well, all of them, really. And yeah. But OnlyFans is not like that. And I say only mainly OnlyFans because OnlyFans is hundreds, and I won't say the exact numbers because they're not publicly available, I don't think, so I don't know them exactly. But it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of monthly uniques mm. on OnlyFans. Mm and multi-millions of creators on OnlyFans versus their nearest rival that is in the kind of like sing, you know, single millions mm. of monthly uniques yeah. rather than hundreds of millions of month, monthly uniques, you know? What, they're, they're huge. What, and what I found interesting about what, what you're doing now is I've seen a lot of the OnlyFans TV stuff where they're starting to, you know, create content. So, mm -hmm. yeah, talk to me about how that system is working at the moment. Yeah, so OnlyFans has a streaming app on yeah. Android and iOS called OFTV, OnlyFans okay. TV, but it's known as OFTV. Yeah. And it is essentially the same way you would have YouTube or Hulu or ITV player or whatever on your phone, mm. you can have OnlyFans TV on your phone. Mm. And the content on that platform is all safe for work, 100%, you know, PG-13 uh, content. Okay. Um, but it's content that is populated by OnlyFans creators. So... Mm. Um, if, if an OnlyFans creator's into cooking and they've got a cooking show on OFTV or mm. they're a fitness professional and they'll take you through workouts on OFTV, like YouTube, yeah? But they also yeah. have their own OnlyFans channel mm. where you can really get to know that creator, yeah. uh, you know, in messages, one-on-one -on -one and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and recently, the Globe Project has been commissioned over the last couple of years to produce original content for OFTV. Mm. So we've just launched season two of our farm challenge show model yeah. farmers mm. season one we did on a dairy farm in jersey mm. one of our creators at the globe project is a farmer fourth generation <laughs> farmer okay and she has an only fans channel where she talks about farming and yeah. there's lots of cow content on there um everybody's fully clothed there's yeah. no you know it's it's a farm channel yeah she's very successful so we pitched a show to only fans whereby we took six OnlyFans creators, divided them into two teams of three, yeah. and they were pitted against each other on the farm for a week, doing farm tasks. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the week, uh, one of the teams would be crowned model farmers. Um, it was very successful. It's mm. a great show. It's available on the platform. And we've just shot season two okay. on a sheep station in the Australian outback. Wow. Again, two teams of OnlyFans creators mm. competing against each other on this sheep station in the outback. Mm. It makes for great viewing, uh, epic scenery and like environment. It's a very tough shoot. It's just launched on the platform. You just, you just mentioned how it, it's been very successful. It's obviously been quite successful if you've got a season two. 
maybe you can't talk about numbers specifically, but how successful are we talking compared to say, you know, the viewership you might get on a big YouTube channel or the viewership you might get on a traditional TV channel? Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. You know, the success for us is gauged by uh, how positively the creators uh, find the experience, yeah. the show. The uh, We're wanting to introduce the creators to bigger audiences all the time. Mm. So it's how the show manages to do that. And OnlyFans also is a creator-first platform. Yeah. And they are only wanting their creators to grow and succeed uh, and establish themselves as their own independent businesses. Mm. So OnlyFans will promote the show also uh and we um yeah that's so that's our success gauge i guess is how successful the creators are off the back of the show yeah uh we don't know metrics in terms of uh people on the app views on the app all that kind of stuff because uh, it's not shared on the OFTV app right okay so there's that and i sit on various advisory boards uh mm. for amazing companies like uh be creator yeah now who run shows like the Be Creator Travel Show. They're yeah. doing a Be Creator Wellness mm. show also. And probably their kind of flagship uh, event is the Be Creator Awards, which used to be called the Blogosphere Awards. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the, the kind of like, I want it to, and it's heading that way very yeah. fast, be the Oscars for the creator economy. Yeah. Uh, some, a night when creators can really be recognized for the amazing things that they've done throughout mm. the year. Uh, and Alice, uh, who runs... Uh, that business is incredibly passionate about it as well. So mm. uh, I'm really interested to see where those guys go. I also sit on the uh, board at the Digital Creator Association, mm -hmm. uh, which is a trade body um, uh, founded by my old COO at Gleam, Phil Hughes, um, to basically protect the rights and interests of creators yeah. rather than any other um, kind of like influence in the creator economy is just about the creators. So representing their voice to government, um, all other kind of like compliance bodies, etc., uh, and just be there for creators that that might not have access to those types of resources, yeah. like you know lawyers, advice, experience. The board's made up of some incredible uh, yeah. creators and execs from around the creator economy as well. Mm. Uh, I also advise. Um, a business called Talent Village, which is a piece of very smart creator tech, I guess, manager and creator tech. Um, check it out. Uh, and uh, I'm, I've made small investments and I'm an angel investor in various other brands like a zero alcohol beer called Freestar mm. uh, and uh, a supplement, a smart supplement brand called Heights, Bits and Bobs, which oh, is yeah, yeah, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I know them. Yeah. Is it, uh, is it um, Stephen... Stephen Bartlett. So Stephen Bartlett's a, a customer, I believe, right, or yeah. was when I first uh, invested okay. in the guys. I think but I saw it on his podcast. Yeah, it has yeah. been. It has yeah. been on on Stephen's podcast. But they they're pioneering the category of brain care, basically. And the founder Dan Morisota thinks that we spend too much attention thinking about hair care and skin care and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Why aren't people focusing on the, one of the most probably the most yeah, important yeah. organ of their body, yeah. the brain? Yeah. Uh, and founded, first of all, it was a smart supplement that catered to brain health. And now they've just launched a probiotic mm. uh, linking uh, gut health to brain health, basically. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So you've obviously spoke about 
subscription-based models. And you've, you can see it. It's, it's coming into YouTube. It's coming into Instagram. It's coming into podcasts. You know, pay five pounds a month for exclusive content and things of that nature. Where else is the... I can't have you sat here and not tell me where you think the future of this industry is going. What is the future of the creator economy, do you think? And where are we heading? Well, I, I think we are about to move into a period of consolidation. I think there's some amazing businesses in the space now and we're really beginning to get a taste of where the quality is. Yeah. And I think it's time for consolidation there uh, to deliver some really amazing content, incredible brand deals, find some amazing talent and scale them properly so that they achieve real, you know, whole world success. Mm. Uh, I think that there will be a greater earnest on premium content so subscription content mm. uh so i think platforms like OnlyFans will uh flourish and lots of platforms that come after OnlyFans as well yeah um i think we'll see the world kind of like a uh, kind of view platforms like OnlyFans with a slightly more open-minded gaze uh, the exec team at OnlyFans is incredibly ambitious for it. It's now an all-female leadership team at OnlyFans. Mm. I don't know if anyone realized that as well. Young female leadership team led by Amy Gann, who's the CEO there. Mm. Uh, and they're doing great things. Watch this space. Um, I think that we'll see more super talent emerge who become brands in their own right. Mm. You know, more Mr. Beasts, more yeah. Primes, more, mm. you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll also see it whilst those, the real premium rises to the top, we'll also see a proliferation of the mediocre also. So, mm. uh, if you think about stage one being the pioneers of the space, you were involved in those very early mm. stages by the sounds of things as mm. well, 2010 ish, fast forward to the middle, uh, where everybody wants a YouTube channel wants to yeah. be an influencer and you see the explosion in the, the invention of the word influencer in 2014 mm. and everything that comes with it, the billions of dollars and the hundreds of millions of creators that flood the scene. Mm. And I think now there'll be a next stage, which will be possibly generative AI driven. Yeah. And we'll see proliferation of, uh, bot driven social media, AI driven social media, mm. Uh, creators who are digitally created people rather than actual people. And yeah. I, I think a, a realization as well, that's not uh, necessarily a bad thing. Like, oh my God, they're fake. Why do you find they're fake? Like people really like Darth Vader in Star Wars or, or anime characters or any other kind of like fantasy character, mm. Mickey Mouse, yeah. that hundreds of millions of people would enjoy, follow and be interested in. I think we'll see the same thing in social media. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's my that's my no. crystal ball gaze. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah. My final question for you is: What's your biggest lesson? I'm speaking at a I'm speaking at my old school's leavers event in a couple of weeks' time, and I need to give them some advice. What's your biggest advice for a young person coming out of school now that maybe doesn't have any kind of direction? After everything you've learned from starting a business to working in businesses and now after business, what is your advice for life? And what's your biggest lesson? Phew, big question. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is this for what uh, young entrepreneurs or creators or yeah any anybody that you know you think that you could give some advice to that that might benefit from it um i think generally be it sounds super cheesy but be true to yourself i think there's too many 
external influences at the moment mm. telling people how they should be acting and achieving and succeeding mm. in the way that I have done it yeah. in terms of you know a TikTok video or a Instagram feed that just makes it look super easy and but uh, I know that there is an enormous amount of blood sweat and tears that goes into any uh, venture uh, be you a talent or an entrepreneur like yourself mm. and it's easy to be uh, uh, dissuaded or kind of like, I don't know, intimidated by what you see other people thinking that you should do yeah. or be like or have achieved by this stage. Mm -hmm. Try and separate yourself from all of that noise. Yeah. And if you are passionate and driven and focused on something, then just pursue it with your own set of values intact. Don't get persuaded to be doing something that you don't believe in or would agree with. Yeah. Uh, and you will, with enormous amounts of hard work succeed yeah um yeah perfect dom thank you so much thank you Cheers. thanks for having me thanks